Welcome to Bandit's Keep. I'm Daniel. A little bit late this week with the episode. I, I don't think I ever said that I was on a schedule, but I've been trying to put these out on Sunday, trying to be kind of consistent, but Gary Kahn has caught up. Uh, choosing to run six games and then thinking that I could get it all done in a month and a half before the con might have been a mistake. But I'll say I'm making great progress. Most of the games are ready. Well, all the adventures are ready. I'm mostly making minis and I have some fun stuff that I'm doing for the game. So I'm super excited for Gary Con this year. But I thought I was going to skip this week, actually. But then I was watching Tim Cask on the Commudgeon in the Cellar YouTube channel. If you don't watch that every Saturday, Tim Cask from the original uh, TSR. From the original TSR. Uh, he talks about all kinds of stuff. And, uh, you know, I watch it once in a while. It's kind of relaxing, actually. So shout out to Tim Cask. Hopefully I'll see him uh, at Gary Con. Anyways. He, somebody had written in and said that they didn't like or they were questioning the uh, the original OD&D way of doing experience points and how you divide the experience by the level, which I'll explain in detail in a second. But Tim was kind of like, yeah, we didn't really like that and we changed it right away. But what's funny is when I came back to OD&D, I decided I was going to use as many of the rules, except for the combat, obviously, with Chainmail, as they were written so that I could see how I needed to adjust them to make them work for Chainmail. And one of the things I've been using is the experience point system, and I really like it. So I'm going to talk a little bit about that today. I also have a bunch of calls. I have at least three calls that I think are old, or two that are old, I think, that I somebody called in to actually anchor, and I didn't see them there. Or perhaps I've played these before, but I don't think so. So you might get a couple of repeat calls. Uh, and if you are one of those callers, uh, Taylor and uh, Evil Jeff, I apologize for taking so long to respond. I might need a disclaimer like Jason has. Okay, so let's get to it. Basically, in OD&D, the way experience points are awarded is as follows. You get one experience point per gold piece in treasure that you recover. You get 100 experience points per the hit die or level of the monster. So that is to say that if you're fighting a three hit die monster, like a white, I think whites are three hit dice, you get 300 experience points. That's all fine and dandy, except, and this is the part that I think that they changed basically, what ends up happening is... You, if the creature is of a lower level than you are, or if you're recovering unguarded treasure on a dungeon level that is lower than you are, you divide it by your level. So that is to say, if you're fighting this three hit die creature, but you are six level, you would get half the experience points. That is, you'd get 50 experience points for killing the white. And if the white had a thousand gold pieces, you would get 500 experience points for their treasure. I'm editing this and I realized that I said 50 experience points for the white, but it's 50 experience points per hit die. So the white would be worth 150 experience points as opposed to 300. I think I did that math right. So on the surface, it's like, whoa, lots of extra weird math. And also you might be thinking, well, hold on, does it go the other way? It doesn't. So if you're a first level fighter and you kill that third level white, you just get full experience points for it. Now, when I first started doing this, I was like, ugh, math. And then also adding the prime requisite bonus and stuff. But as I started doing it, I realized because our, we're playing a mixed group, we have magic users, we have fighters, and we have clerics. What I'm learning is that because clerics level up faster, so for instance, if your cleric only takes 1,200 or 1,500 experience points to get to second level, I can't remember which one it is, but your fighter takes 2,000, well, when the cleric reaches second level at, let's say, 1,600, 1,700 experience points, and the party's still exploring the first level of the dungeon, that cleric has a definite advantage. But all the treasure they get from that point, the cleric is now getting half because they're second level and they're in the first level of the dungeon. So now that allows that fighter and magic user to kind of edge up and catch up. 
Same thing with the fighter. The fighter reaches second level at 2,000. The magic user doesn't until 25. So if they're all still on the first level of a dungeon exploring, the fighter and the cleric are getting slightly less experience points. The magic user is getting slightly more. And what this does, too, is it encourages people to go deeper, right? They don't want to sit around on the surface level of the dungeon fighting a bunch of low-level monsters because they won't get the experience point or as many experience points for them. The other thing this does for you is... If you think about how monsters operate, you end up getting, most people consider this true in OSR games. You get, because this happened in Greyhawk, they changed everything. You get very little experience points for killing monsters. And that's cool. But what that means is that when you're a first level party and you raid that dungeon, if you go in there and fight like six, seven goblins, then you have to retreat because you're first level and you know, you're going to die otherwise. You might not get hardly any gold. So it might take multiple sessions, multiple explorations to get anywhere. What this does is it kind of increases or accelerates that first level. And some people are probably going to say, no, but I find it works really well because at first level, you are crazy fragile. <laughs> so getting the party to second level a bit faster, I think is very nice. I do also, and again, I had considered as I was playing it, one of my first thoughts was, oh, I'm going to change it. If you fight a higher level monster, you're going to get that percentage higher. But I think it makes sense not to do that as well, because what that would probably do is create situations where your first level party is just like, you know what, let's just go kill something higher hit dice so we can, you know, level up and you'll probably get a lot more dead PCs at the beginning, <laughs> especially with new players. So I think it helps balance it there. Also, occasionally you end up fighting something as a low level party that's very high hit die. So, you know, when my group was first level, they were fighting four or five hit die creatures, but they're a group, right? Single creature against the group. But if you go, oh, four-player characters fighting a four-hit-die creature at first level, then they're all going to get the 400 experience points if you do the math that way, which seems a little bit high. So for me, I actually think it works out pretty well. Like many things in just the three little brown books, they're quirky as hell, but you can kind of see where they were coming from, and I think on a lot of levels they work. Now, I know in AD&D, there's some talk about this. I haven't read through the chapters in a while, but... I know that Guy X talks about the idea of like, if you're like a high level fighter or a magic user and you're just like walking around killing orcs, then you shouldn't get any experience points for that or very little, right? Because you're so much more powerful than them. And I think this actually is interesting because I, I remember when I first started playing uh, with one of my players and they only really played Pathfinder and they didn't, play, didn't know anything about the old school games. And we went to play once and she had said, oh, um, I heard that in those older games, like, you just run around and have to kill a bunch of monsters to level up so that you could get to the lower levels of the dungeon because it was really deadly. And I said, well, but you hardly get any experience points for killing monsters. I wonder why you heard that. And I think that ties into video games. I would love to know from people who played, like, the D&D &D style video games and, like, I guess that would be, like, maybe the late 80s, 90s is when they were, the gold box ones and stuff. I never played that. But my understanding of those is that's where you have that thing, the grind. We have to run around and kill stuff so you can get enough points to go lower in the dungeon. And I wonder if people conflate that with OSR games because they have more knowledge of the video game versus the uh, versus the role-playing game. I'm super curious. So if you know anything about that, I would love to know. And also, those games look really cool. Maybe I'll give one a try at some point. So, you know, I'm not a huge video game person, but I like, I like the idea of the... Uh, the, using the actual mechanics from the game. Apparently, there's a Pathfinder game, too, um, that's on a PlayStation, I think. It's, maybe it's on Xbox. I don't know what it's on. It's on one of the things that my friend has. So they're going to download it, and I'm, I'm going to check it out. So that's kind of cool. Anyways, that's a total side uh, note in there, anyways. But anyways, I like it. It's funny. He looks at it, and I think this is the thing, right? When you're developing a game, so going back to my ideas as a game developer, 
a lot of times you throw a lot of stuff out there because you think it'll work and then it's clunky or tricky or people are like, hmm, and you just kind of put it to the side. You're like, ah, I get a better idea. And what you find is that later on when you look back at it, hey, that might have not been so bad. Now, I can imagine what was happening. This is my opinion. I wasn't around, but I can imagine in the early days with the 100 experience points per hit die of things like goblins and orcs and stuff, you may have found people, especially war gamers, who were like, well, crap, we're just going to take like 20 characters and we're going to set up a big ambush and we're going to go kill, you know, 500 goblins so that we can get tons of experience points and level up really quickly because with strategy and tactics and the right plan, you probably can do that, right? And that's maybe why they were like, oh, no, no, we're not going to do that because we don't want people to just slaughter fest. But hey, you know what? I don't think that it created a, a set of murder hobos in my group. They actually really appreciated leveling up pretty quickly, like the cleric got to second level, like really quick. And that made a big difference, especially since clerics don't get spells until second level. So that was very nice. In any case, I would love to know if you use these rules, if you're playing AD&D, I know uh, Jason is, do you guys divide the experience point in some way based on the level or you just straight up give it if you know how they do it? I don't know. If you guys play OD&D, how do you do experience points? Go ahead and call into the show and let me know your experiences here and thoughts on this. If you want me to go deeper into it, I think I explained it right. <laughs> I will, but basically let me know. In any case, I uh, have a bunch of calls. We're going to get to them. Like I said, some of these might be actually older calls, so I apologize if I didn't play them before, but I'm playing them now. So let's get to it. Hey, this is Matthew Schmier, the creator of the Deep Dungeon Gonzo Die Drop Table that you featured back in October of 2022. I just discovered your podcast and wanted to thank you for giving that Die Drop Table a shout out. Um, I've been uploading a couple of other die drop tables to my itch.io page, uh, where it you can find by uh, going to Rended Press and clicking on the link that'll take you to itch.io. Um, it's Rended Press, not Rendered Press. So it's R E N D E D P R E S S dot blogspot.com. So thanks again for featuring that and look forward to listening to your podcast. Thanks. All right. That's awesome. Uh, thanks for calling in, uh, Matthew. Super fun little table. The episode, it was way back in OSR October. I'll put a link to his blog spot down here so that uh, if you didn't write down as he was spelling it out, you'll get a link there. So thanks for calling in, Matthew. And very, very fun table. Mostly dead. He was totally dead. That's why, spoiler alert, Valeria had to die in the middle coming out of the Mountain of Balsadum. The spirits of this place extract a heavy toll. But moreover, the reason I'm calling is I liked listening to the differential application of the fantasy combat table. That is, different classes getting into that table at different levels. And I love the idea that magic users are more effective early on against magical beasts because they're more versed in it. They've come across them in their study. And I like the idea that clerics come in a little later because they uh, this is a counterbalance to their functionality against undead. But, and you hinted at this, the XP tracks, they don't necessarily line up. So are clerics actually coming in late? Uh, because fighters, I think, are 2,000, 4,000, and so on. Clerics are only like 1,200, 2,400, and so on. So I'd love to hear your thoughts. So that was, of course, Taylor from Clerics Wear Ringmail. So I was talking about using uh, basically the hero stat, right, to get you into the, the fantasy combat, which is how it works, and whether or not I want to change that, because part of it is that magic users can 
just in case you missed that episode, Magic users can fight as wizard almost from the beginning, just with a penalty, so it kind of gets them into the chart actually before anybody else. It also helps them with their saving throws. I don't know if that was the same <laughs> episode that I mentioned that, but to answer the question, yeah, it does. It does actually, uh, because hero, sorry, it does actually get them in slower because a cleric does not actually uh, fight as a hero, or minus one that is, until they are bishop, which is sixth level. So that's two levels after the fighter, and a sixth level cleric takes 2,500 experience points. I should say 25,000 experience points, but of course, you knew that. Where a fourth level fighter only takes 8,000, so it's a pretty big gap there. But I'm okay with it. We started doing this, and it actually works out really well. I like it. Clerics have a... Everybody's got their place and their powers, and it's really interesting to see the magic users shine in that situation, and the clerics shine in other situations. And of course, some of the creatures on Fantasy Combat are undead, so they can still face them using, you know, turn undead and various other clerical abilities that you might have. So very cool. I'm enjoying it a lot. And, uh, you know, again, as I dig into this chainmail, it's really interesting and adds a lot of flavor. And there's a certain idea, I think, that in games, especially more modern games, we're moving forward where everything needs to be balanced so that when we are you know, if you want to play whatever character you want to play, you're going to be okay because everything's balanced out and your fighter is going to be a good fighter, but the wizard's also going to have something that's going to equal that so everybody can take part in combat all the time. Or the magic user's got a lot of knowledge, but the fighter also has other skills. So outside of combat, they have stuff to do. But I like the archetypes. And I think that OD&D and especially Chainmail really nails that down. So yeah, I think it's a cool way to do it. And I've been pretty happy with it so far. Okay, this is one, again, that one from Taylor, I wasn't sure if I'd played before. I don't think so. And this is another one from Evil Jeff that I'm pretty sure I did not play. So sorry, Evil Jeff, here's your call now. Daniel, Evil Jeff, just listen to your latest about the plot. Uh, I like what you said there. I agree with a lot of it. If I, I don't do, well, I do plots, but it's not something that I force on the players. There are plots going all around. NPCs have things that they want to have done. Whether or not the players get embroiled in them uh, is up to the players. Those plots may go forward whether the players involve themselves or not, and sometimes those plots could be detrimental to the players later on. So you know, it's up to the players, but that doesn't mean players don't get involved. It doesn't mean that some bad guy's not going to do something. Keep up the great work. All right, I think maybe he was running out of time in the message, so he had to... <laughs> no, I think Anchor screwed that up. Uh, so uh, hopefully you understood what he said there. But yeah, I think the idea is there, right? This is when we were talking about plots a while back because I had used the word plot and then Taylor had said, oh, I don't like that word for various reasons. And it's interesting to um, hear different people's point of view on it. Uh, and in, in the end, he didn't like that the player said it because he was concerned that a player saying that thinks that they are basically being railroaded. But of course, we've hashed that out. And I think that uh, Evil Jeff is right. I think there are plots going on in the world. There's plots that are happening everywhere, and which ones the players want to get involved in is really up to them. That's what makes the uh, emergent story. Okay, and I think this one's from Joe Richter from Hindsightless. Yo, Daniel, what up, man? I just got finished listening to your episode where you're talking about monsters with unique mechanics. And yeah, I'm with you. I like my monsters to feel different, you know? I don't mind if I have to look something up. Uh, because like you pointed out, if something's going to come up in your session and you're pretty sure that it's going to before the session, just look it up ahead of time. Make sure you're, you're, you know, what's going on. But 
what I wanted to call in about, other than to say good episode, man, was uh, kind of a tangent thought that came to me when you and Jason were talking about the giant weasels and how crazy that would be and how the D&D world is way horrific. But, you know, if we think about it, our ancestors had to deal with that shit. (laughs) There were giant megafauna all over the place up until about 12,000 years ago. Giant buffalo, giant sloths, giant lizard, like all sorts of giant, you know, dire bears, dire wolves. Our ancestors lived through all of that shit. (laughs) And that's, it's just, it's crazy to think about. And they didn't even have, well, maybe they did have magic. Uh, But... (laughs) It's commonly believed that our ancestors did not have any supernatural abilities, access to magic, uh, or even the technology that most D&D games are set in. You know, our ancestors weren't walking around in full plate, probably not, 12,000 years ago. They had some spears and some bows, and they were going to town, man. And it's just crazy. Like, yeah, the D&D people, they got it easy, man. Anyway, awesome episode. Peace out. Yeah, I I 100% agree with that. When you actually think about like what people had to do to survive, especially back, which would be, I guess that's not quite prehistoric. I don't know when they put that line down, but right, when you're just talking about spears and bows and just kind of being out there in the wilderness. I wonder if, you know, when you think about it, that's maybe that's why every role-playing game comes to this too. Fire is the separating factor, right? We we can make fire and maybe that makes a big deal. But uh, yeah, 100% true. I think that... Uh, even without the, even with, I should say, magic and technology of medieval Europe, I guess, is where a lot of D&D sits. I think that, uh, yeah, it's still pretty horrific, but imagine being without. Now that makes me want to play some prehistoric role-playing games. <laughs> and yeah, of course, as I said, I, I like the idea of, of unique monsters and having unique abilities. And I think it's kind of fun. Of course, I'm one of those people that really separates the combat from the actual rest of the game. Like, I don't mind stopping it, not stopping, but you know what I'm saying, like kind of switching gears. Uh, it, there are There is a thought process, of course, that uh, by some people, especially in uh, these like very light games where like you don't want that. You don't want to ever have to look at anything. Like I've heard many people be like, I don't have any rule, rule books at the table. I just have our character sheets and whatever. If I don't know the rule or they don't know the rule, we just make it up. And that's a cool way to play as well. But I think that sometimes it's fun to like get involved in something that's a little bit deeper and... I feel like if I made up a bunch of weird abilities on the fly where you couldn't kill the white and then you got level drained a couple levels, you'd probably give me a side eye. So it's nice that it's in the book. <laughs> Some protection for the DM. But yeah, cool. Thanks for calling in, Joe. And Joe is from the Hindsight List podcast, so check him out. I'll put a link. And I believe this last one's from Jason. I did say there was a call from Jason, and if there's not, I'll be, we'll be, we'll be lying. But I'm pretty sure this last call's from Jason. Hey, Daniel. Just listen to your latest episode of your podcast where you talk about the different kinds of monsters and OD&D and and I agree with you I I like the now I can get down with the idea of really simple monsters too I really enjoy Tunnels and Trolls and you don't get any more simple than Tunnels and Trolls where you have a monster rating how much damage they do is based on the monster rating and that's it Tunnels and Trolls is basically like fantasy combat in chainmail it's super abstract you, you know, both sides roll the dice, whichever side is higher, the the other side takes the difference in damage. And then the, the more damage you take, the weaker you, you get. That's Tunnels and Trolls, right? So that's super abstract. But I do like the, 
the subsystems and the more complicated monsters and the unique monsters like you see in OD&D or as it evolved into AD&D. And then, you know, in AD&D, you have all kinds of subsystems that only exist for one or two monsters, you know. You have monsters with, you know, AD&D doesn't have hit locations, but you definitely have monsters that do hit location attacks, you know, or monsters that have different AC and whatnot for different parts of their bodies or, you know, all kinds of special unique mechanics. So I like that. I think it makes the game more interesting personally. But, you know, if somebody wants to play a game where it's, it's definitely more abstract out. You roll the dice, and then you want to narrate what happened. Well, I'm down to play Tunnels and Trolls as well. So take care. Talk to you soon. Oh, that's very interesting. See, I've never played Tunnels and Trolls, though I hear a lot about it. And also that you can play it solo, which is kind of cool. So I'll have to look into that at some point. But that's really cool. And actually, it's funny you say it's like fantasy combat. What's interesting about something like, let's say, Chainmail and its use in OD&D is that, you know, again, it has that, like, simple layer, but it also has a more complex layer. And not every monster has special things, but in Chainmail, for instance, you know, you can't just kill a dragon, right? No, you can't fight a dragon on regular combat, but dragons can attack you on regular combat. And if you're a hero, you can have a certain role to kill a dragon. But if you're a hero with a magic bow, you have a different role to kill a dragon. So it does use these extra little pieces and stuff that I guess carried over again. And I think that little by little, people that are playing, and I'm not saying additional because I don't really know. I don't know enough about the monster manual in second, third, fourth, etc., to know that this was really removed, but I think in a lot of times in the OSR, and I've talked about this before with other mechanics, like not tracking uh, stuff, and again, I'm not going to get into that, but I think the idea is the more we abstract the game, we lose some of that cool flavor, right? So how do you create monsters that are really interesting? I guess if you're just great at describing what the monster looks like and you're awesome at narrating the combat, cool. But I still feel like after a while, that becomes maybe a little tedious, and maybe that's why combat is often looked at as, well, by a lot of people I talk to anyways, as the kind of the most boring part of the game. You know, you see over and over again, combat is boring, combat is boring. And I think that's because things become too repetitive. You find the one thing that works, everybody just keeps doing it, which is cool, except that if you have that cool move that you do, or that one magic sword that you always use, and then as you level up, combat just keep taking longer and longer because they're just more powerful monsters, then it becomes boring. Right. If you've got the one cool move where you cut off somebody's head and it works 75% of the time or even 25% of the time and most combats end quickly, then I'm okay with the repetitiveness. But if it's going to be a long combat that's involved, I feel like having something unique and interesting is fun. And I also like that, and I thought while going way back to early YouTube, I talked about this. I like the idea that, because there is this idea of unique monsters, right? 100% unique monsters. But I do like the idea of like monsters with a unique ability that you can figure out because they're not a solo monster. That is to say like a white is a fairly common monster at OD&D. So once you work out that the white needs to be killed a certain way, you know how to beat whites. And so it's a puzzle that players are solving and you can grow as a player and learn these things. If you make every single monster unique and each one has its own little puzzle, then I think players can't feel like they learned anything. It becomes a whole other thing. And I guess that becomes more something you can use for, and I hate to use this term, but a boss monster, right? Like an end monster, or your final guy that you're fighting that they've been going after for months. Maybe that person has a very special thing that only happens with them, but you're kind of, you know, bog standard monsters, if you will. Whites, dragons, ghasts, ghouls, mummies. You know, you figure it out. Once the first time you burn a mummy with a torch and realize that's how we kill a mummy, 
that's an awesome experience as a player. And then you can take that knowledge next time you see mummies, you're not as afraid of them. You back up and, all right, wrap some rags around our arrows and let's get in there and kill those mummies. And it just becomes a whole other uh, way to look at the exact same combat. So I, I like that. It's like an evolving story, if you will. Anyways, that's my thought on that. I love to get all kinds of calls, even though sometimes I, I fail to play them. So I apologize to those who I didn't play their calls right away. And uh, if you want to call in, you can follow the link in the show notes uh, via Anchor and send me a message that way. And I will start checking those. I used to get notifications, but apparently they don't give me notifications anymore. And so I will start checking those every week. Also, you could join my Discord server, link in the show notes. From there, you can send me a message on Discord, just record it and send me a private message. Easy as that. There's also a link to my Patreon and other places you can find me online. So if you want to check that stuff out, I appreciate it. And I'll talk to you soon.